0: Welcome to Repros Fight Back, a podcast on all things repro. I'm your host, Jenny Wetter, and each episode, I will be taking you to the front lines of the escalating fight over our sexual and reproductive health and rights at home and abroad. Each episode, I will be speaking with leaders who are fighting to protect our reproductive health and rights to ensure that no one's reproductive health depends on where they live. It's time for Repros to Fight Back. Welcome to Repros, Fight Back. On this week's episode, we're going to switch to cover global issues that we've kind of ignored for a little bit. Um, So this week, we're going to talk about PEPFAR, helping me dig into this topic. I'm super excited to have the amazing Caitlin Horrigan with Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Welcome, Caitlin, and thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Jenny. Okay. So before we get into PEPFAR, um, I figured we should probably start with a little basic, like, What was um, HIV-AIDS, what was going on in 2003?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's such an important question because oftentimes I think we forget to reflect on where we've come from, and we're so focused on the remaining work to be done that we forget that a lot of progress has been made, especially in the 15 years that have passed since PEPFAR was originally passed, as you mentioned, in 2003. So what did the global AIDS epidemic look like pre-PEPFAR? I think the real harm was that there was a lack of access to treatment, um, and that really HIV and AIDS was viewed as a death sentence in so many parts of the world. And in fact, in 2002, it was the leading cause of death for people 15 to 59. So for a lot of people, it was a death sentence. And I think then it was surrounded by a lot of fear, a lot of misinformation, a lot of misconceptions, and a lot of stigma that really undermined the work. And it wasn't that there were no treatment options available, it's just that they were unequally distributed. Mm -hmm. So in the mid-90s, there were actually um, viable treatment options, but it was just in some of the places hardest hit by the epidemic, like in sub-Saharan Africa, they really weren't accessible at all. So the people who needed the most in resource-low settings weren't getting the life-saving medication that they need. And we could talk in all sorts of numbers, I think, about what else was happening at that time. But really, for me, the top line is, is that millions of people were needlessly dying when there are resources and things available that could save their lives. And that's why we so desperately needed PEPFAR.
0: So what is PEPFAR?
1: Well, um, first it's an acronym, so I'll break down what that is since we live in way too many acronyms.
0: Always good to remember that. I sometimes forget. Yes,
1: although it's a long one, so it's nice to have the short term. But it stands for President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, and it was established in 2003 by then-President George W. Bush, and really it was a five-year vision with $15 billion dollars to combat HIV and AIDS globally and also tackle malaria and TB because those diseases were so interrelated with the epidemic. Um, So it was actually passed through bipartisan legislation, which sounds kind of novel these days with the state of Congress. But it was, at the time, the biggest um, global health investment in a single disease by any country in the world, and in fact, still is that today. And for the U.S., you know, we've long invested in global health, but this represents by far the biggest investment we've made. And in fact, in um, FY fiscal year 2017, it represented 62% of our global health funding. So yeah, a huge chunk of how we're showing up in the world in terms of global health. I think it's exciting because not only was it started in a bipartisan fashion, but Congress has actually reauthorized, which sort of means reapproved it twice since its history. Um, again, with broad bipartisan support, which again sounds so quaint and novel these days. But that was in 2008 and in 2013. They sort of reaffirmed their support for this and doubled down and, and continued the, the important work of the program. Um, And since it started, it started with about 15 countries, now works in over 40. So it's grown a lot since it originally started and really sort of um, harnesses the whole of government approach. So State Department is working with HHS, Department of Defense, Peace Corps, USAID, to really have a holistic um, response to the crisis that the world was facing.
0: So what was PEPFAR like under President Bush?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think PEPFAR has been strong in both Republican and Democratic administrations, but in different ways. Um, I think under President Bush, you know, we did see it was really in that emergency phase. So it was dealing with really bringing treatment to people who had never had treatment before. So we saw vast improvements in that area. We saw great improvements in things like preventing mother-to-child transmission, which was huge for women who are living with HIV and wanted to build families and have a healthier next generation. And I think um, PEPFAR at that time was really building sort of a health system in places that didn't have a platform, which allowed for then, when there were new technologies, medical and scientific breakthroughs like voluntary male circumcision, which is a new HIV prevention tool, to really have the infrastructure to deliver it on scale to all the people that needed it. Of course, at that time, too, we didn't do as much as we could because of some bad policies that were in place that were short-sighted and really held back our progress. So under Bush, PEPFAR focused a lot on abstinence-only programs, which might be familiar to the listeners because it's sort of having a resurge of a moment now. Yes. And I know you've tackled that in previous episodes But that was a real hallmark hallmark of the PEPFAR program and really did, especially young people, a disservice by not providing them with the information that they needed to make healthy decisions and really to lead healthy lives, despite even at that time, there was tons of evidence that that wasn't effective. It's grown as people have analyzed PEPFAR. And then the other major policy setback, I think, from that time was there was what's known as a refusal provision which allowed organizations to pick and choose what they felt comfortable providing and refused to provide services even if they would save people's lives. And so that really held us back by placing sort of organizations' personal preferences above people that needed health care and services. So that was sort of what it looked like under Bush. Um, Funding increased a lot, treatment increased a lot, but we didn't do everything we could have because of some of these harmful policy restrictions.
0: Bush was definitely before I got involved in Rebro Health, so I was not as familiar with the refusal side. I um, only knew about the abstinence side, so that's interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah, and obviously there have been a lot of domestic refusals since. Mm-hmm. PEPFAR is kind of the worst one we have on the books, so oh, really? it's kind of a model that has been tried to be replicated in a lot of domestic programs. Um, it's sort of the worst of the worst that's out there, and sadly some of the most vulnerable people around the world have suffered because of it.
0: So what did Obama change when he came into office?
1: Sure. Um, well, um, Obama was also a big supporter of PEPFAR. I think one of the challenges that he faced is just when he was taking, I mean, he faced a lot of challenges, <laughs> um, but one of them related to this was the global financial crisis hit sort of just as he was taking into office. So while PEPFAR funding had sort of steadily increased through you know, congressional budget cycles, up through the beginning of his administration, all of a sudden there was less funding available for everything, but including PEPFAR, and so funding sort of flatlined. So I think one of the challenges that the Obama administration did a really great job is is thinking about how programs could be delivered more effectively since resources weren't um, expanding. And so two things that I think his administration did which really changed the game for PEPFAR one was that women and girls were became a major focus of foreign policy writ large, but including PEPFAR. So they thought a lot more about what programs to meet women and girls' needs should look like within PEPFAR. And for far too long, I think they had been neglected. And as part of that, they looked at integrating programs more. So, you know, for a long time, we've had like an HIV program here and a maternal health program somewhere else and a family planning program somewhere else. And it's the same person that needs all those services. And so the Obama administration worked really hard. It's still a work in progress, I think, but to integrate those programs so that a person can go to one place and get more of their comprehensive needs met and don't have to wait in line and travel distances repeatedly to get basic services, including HIV and things like family planning.
0: Uh, Really important point was talking about the financial crisis because I think so many people think of so many other implications of the financial crisis and aid is definitely not one of the things that's talked about that when there was that government freeze, it meant, you know, government spending really had to be thought about um, on a smaller scale, I guess, um, in how to fund these great programs that we are working on and effectiveness then became a real Uh, push.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was sort of a more imperative, I think, to how can we keep up the momentum, but without just more money on the table.
0: The Obama administration focused on women and girls. So one of the big programs they had under PEPFAR was the DREAMS initiative. Do you want to tell us a little
1: bit about that? Sure. And we've got another Uh, acronym to discuss, another good one. Um, So DREAMS stands for determined, resilient, empowered, AIDS-free, mentored, and safe. So I'll continue to say dreams because that's a mouthful. Yes. (laughs) So dreams was announced on World AIDS Day in 2014. And it was really a groundbreaking new initiative to focus on HIV prevention for adolescent girls and young women. And it originally focused in 10 sub Saharan African countries and really tried to look at the evidence base for what these women and girls wanted and needed. And took a cross-sectoral approach, so not just thinking about health, but also like what are their education needs? Um, What are their needs as it relates to poverty or gender-based violence? How are they showing up in the world and what's holding them back? And so put forward a comprehensive set of core interventions, sort of banking on the idea of here are all the things we know work individually. What if we made sure a set of girls and young women got them all together and the bet is, is that their outcomes will be better? And it was really so key, um, and I think sort of the North star for the program was that there are a thousand women and g- young women and adolescent girls every day who are newly infected with HIV. Those numbers are staggering, and it's disproportionate too for them. seventy four percent of adolescents who are infected in sub-Saharan Africa are girls. So wow. they're, yeah, they're really getting, um, you know, infected and, and suffering the consequences in a way that their male peers aren't. So clearly, the AIDS community has failed them to some degree. And DREAMS, I think, was sort of a signal of, okay, we're doubling down. We recognize that they're so key, and we're not going to um, repeat the mistakes of the past. And so DREAMS is still around It's still around, but it's definitely one of the areas that we feel quite nervous about could be in jeopardy because, you know, when we talk about evidence-based approaches for adolescent girls and young women, especially in HIV prevention, that includes things like adolescent-friendly sexual and reproductive health services. It includes things like post-violence care, which includes provision of PEP and EC, emergency contraception. Um, It includes sex ed. And so these are things that are on the target and on the chopping block in this administration. So, you know, there's been great momentum. Just last year on World AIDS Day, they announced some promising results from the first couple years of the initiative where they did see dramatic decreases in the incidence for adolescent girls and young women in the target countries. And in fact, they even had more countries saying, we want to adopt this model and approach So it's something uh, that we certainly hope doesn't go away, but we recognize that it could be vulnerable and are nervous about um, it being subjected to the ideology of this administration. Yes, so I
0: think that brings us to the perpetual elephant in the room in most of these conversations, which is what has changed under the Trump-Pence administration?
1: Yeah, (laughs) a lot has changed. Um, I think an early signal of the changes that we were going to see under Trump was during his first proposed budget. And what we saw was really dramatic, dramatic cuts to global health writ large, including HIV and AIDS. So while many of us may have expected, although it was devastating to see the zeroing out of international family planning, PEPFAR has been so bipartisan and so embraced by previous Republican administrations that it was really jarring to see also significant cuts to the PEPFAR program proposed. And in fact, they were roundly sort of um, dismissed by even his Republican colleagues on the Hill who called his budget dead on arrival and really spoke out against things like the cuts to PEPFAR as being um, incompatible with sort of U.S. values and interests. Um, but the message doesn't seem to have cut through because, you know, one year later, he proposed very similar budget cuts again. So um, I think it's a real question mark on um, where the Trump administration is focused on PEPFAR. And, of course, with less resources, the one thing they've said is that they'll maintain people who are currently on treatment will be maintained, which is critically important, obviously, Something we support, but it leaves a lot of open-ended questions about, Absolutely. you know, what happens to care and prevention, which are also critical pieces of an AIDS response, and what happens to people who are just finding out they're HIV positive. Is there treatment available for them? I think they really haven't answered for those questions.
0: Um, one other thing that has really changed under the Trump administration was the reimposition and expansion of the global gag rule. Um, And before we get into how it could impact PEPFAR, maybe we could do like a quick breakdown um, on what the global gag rule is for listeners who aren't familiar, Um, but listeners who want to learn more should definitely check out episode five, where we cover the global gag rule in more detail, but we're just gonna do like a quick down and dirty, what is it?
1: Sure. Um So, the basics are is that, in one of his first actions after being inaugurated and really on the heels of a massive women's march, which not only happened in the u s but really around the world, Trump put into place the Global gag rule, which basically says to foreign organizations, if you want to receive even a dollar of u s global health money, you have to give up your right to use other non u s dollars to provide any abortion services, but not only services, referrals, counseling and also give up your right to advocate to your own government about abortion policies. So it's really um, a heartbreaking policy and one that we know has caused a lot of harm in the past. Unfortunately, Trump made it even worse because it used to only apply to family planning and now is extended to all of global health, including HIV and AIDS. So PEPFAR was the um, the biggest newly infected program under this expanded version.
0: So how has it affected PEPFAR?
1: Um, We've seen a lot of troubling signs, and I think there there are a lot of unanswered questions that we're staying vigilant about. Um, I think one of the first things that is clear is because so many partners never faced the global gag rule before, there's mass confusion in the field. People don't understand what it is. They don't understand what they can do and not do. And I think that one of the risks in that is that there's a real chilling effect because when people are nervous and don't understand what's happening and are getting a lot of negative signals from the administration about a lot of issues in general, they tend to default to the lowest common denominator. And that means people are often holding back, holding back from providing services that are needing, holding back from engaging partnerships. So that confusion, that chilling effect is quite clear. I think we're also already starting to see impacts on HIV. And I should say that the impacts on HIV aren't entirely new, even when it was only family planning. I think we know that many family planning providers served as an entry point, especially for women and children, to enter the health system. And so they weren't only getting contraception there. They may have also been getting HIV counseling or testing or linked to services. So even under the old versions of the GAG, we already saw HIV impact, But I think with this expanded version, we're seeing it even more dramatically. And so many more countries are impacted. I think, you know, we're seeing examples like there's an organization, the International Planned Parenthood Member Association in Mozambique um, is losing about two-thirds of their budget um, because of the expanded global gag rule. And again, this wasn't funding just to do family planning work, but they actually were working to support um, about – a half a million people, including many young people, who they were providing with physical, psychological, and social support for people especially who are living with HIV. So the impact is much broader. Um, The communities, the reach is getting devastated, and there's not an easy substitute, I think, for others to step in and do the work because so many of the organizations have built up special trust or are serving especially vulnerable populations, which other organizations don't have the expertise in.
0: Yeah, and I think it also harkens back to what you said, talked about before with the Obama administration focusing on integrating services, that even if the um, global gag rule hadn't been expanded, more groups would have been impacted because you were doing so much more integration of health services, um, and so it makes it so much more complicated.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, With Planned Parenthood Global, which is our international arm, we actually had a partner in Kenya who um, was partnering with PEPFAR around an Orphans and Vulnerable Children program, but because they also valued their role as an abortion advocate, they're having to pull back from not the work. They're still committed to working with orphans and vulnerable children, but they can no longer partner with the U.S. government to do it, which is a real loss. And I think you know it's not only a story of them losing the current grant that they have, but they will no longer compete with everyone else for future grants. And that's kind of an untold story because it means just we're having less competitive processes. The best people aren't necessarily coming forward to do the work um, in the way that they could have.
0: A new groups with established contacts don't just spring up. So, you know, if this grant goes to someone else, they may not have the connections in that community.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we just can't afford to take the foot off the gas at all. You know, it's so urgent. Um, We've made a lot of progress, but it could easily slip backwards. So this policy, I think, um, really puts us at risk of doing so.
0: So how has the HIV AIDS community responded to the global gag rule?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think um, advocacy has always been sort of part of the DNA of the AIDS community. And I think especially people living with HIV have always really been on the front lines of pushing on for advocacy, funding, and policy. And so for many, the global gag role is sort of already on their radar. But I do think this expanded version has opened up a whole new set of players who all of a sudden are seeing themselves in this fight, whereas people used to think, oh, maybe like, oh, that's a repro fight, you know. I I support it, Um, you know, I hope they're successful, but I don't see myself in that. Now I think people are standing together in a much more robust way, which is maybe one of the silver linings of all being under attack together. But, for example, we worked on an open statement opposing the global gag rule, which has been endorsed by over 160 organizations, and that includes more than a dozen national major HIV organizations. So I think they're really showing up vocally, visibly, Uh, to say that the global gag rule hurts the HIV response and is really bad public health policy. And it'll be interesting to see the global AIDS community come together in Amsterdam in July. Um, There's a major global AIDS conference that happens every two years, and this will be the first convening uh, since the gag rule has been put into place. And already I think we're hearing a lot of chatter and momentum about seizing this as an opportunity both to do the technical assistance and capacity building to make sure people understand what the gag rule is and isn't, but also to really harness a collective strategy and to really send a loud and vocal message of, as an HIV-AIDS community, we oppose the global gag rule. So I'm excited for that moment and the real um, loud global response that hopefully comes out of it.
0: Oh, that's really great to hear. So what we touched on this a little bit. What are some of your concerns going forward with PEPFAR?
1: Yeah. um, Some of the big concerns that are on my mind is we have seen an uptick, um, a resurgence, which I uh, reflected on earlier, of abstinence only, despite the decades of evidence that it's not effective. And I think we've seen this domestically, and now it's sort of creeping into the Petfar program guidance that comes out annually, which, again, really hurts young people and the future generations who are going to be left without the tools and information they need to keep themselves healthy and safe. So um, that definitely keeps us up at night and has us really concerned. And I think we know that the Trump administration has put so many ideologues in place. Nothing is sacred to them. So... PEPFAR is not sacred. They're going to push their agenda wherever they can push it. And unfortunately, I think PEPFAR is one of the targets that they have in their sites. So that's definitely concerning. And then I think any backsliding on dreams, because it has been so promising and so hard fought for by so many advocates... And I think the thing with DREAMS is was it wasn't just that it was listening to the data. It was also listening to the young women and girls themselves who told us what they needed. And so we're finally delivering that, that I hope it doesn't that doesn't get sacrificed for people with an extreme ideological agenda. Yeah, and I think it's also worth,
0: you know, we talked about the return of abstinence only. It's also been rebranded. So you might be seeing things about it, but not realizing that that's what you're seeing. Um, the new thing is sexual risk avoidance. Um, And so that's uh, the new name they've given the same old program.
1: Yeah, that's totally true. And then we have seen that creep into the global sphere as well. And I think people aren't always familiar that that's how it's been rebranded in the U.S. So their antenna isn't up automatically, whereas abstinence only, they think, oh, that isn't a correct program. This, they're like, oh, what is that? So maybe it might slide in there. sounds
0: good. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so it's um, very insidious, and I think we're going to have to stay super vigilant to combat it.
0: So I know one of the things that the global community has really been focused on um, in the last several years is creating an AIDS regeneration. Um, so what needs to be done to make sure we see this happen?
1: Yeah, and I that was such a exciting and ambitious framing of the issue, so I do hope we're still thinking about, like, what is that long-term vision of what it's going to take. Um, I think for me, one of the key things is that and this was a theme in the sustainable development goals is that we can't leave anyone behind. And that may sound obvious, but I think, you know, with a lot of efforts, we deal with the easiest people first. And so, you know, if we're truly going to achieve an AIDS regeneration, we can't leave women and girls behind. We can't leave LGBT populations behind. We can't leave sex workers behind. We can't use people, leave people who use drugs behind. We have to think really holistically and there's no um, one-size-fits-all solution for all those people, so we have to challenge ourselves for what they really need and really deliver it for them. And then I think to go back to the absence only theme, we have to stick with what we know works, and we have to follow the science and the evidence and the data. It's a huge disservice to the people that we're trying to serve if we don't do that and we'll never achieve an AIDS-free generation if we don't stick with that. And then... I think, you know, there are sort of larger themes that we have to do. We have to center things on human rights. We've made a lot of progress, but there's still an incredible amount of work to do to combat stigma, discrimination, and violence, which are sort of underlying factors that I think continue to perpetuate HIV and AIDS and will never fully get over the epidemic if we don't tackle those kind of things.
0: So now that the listeners know all the great information around PEPFAR, what can they do to get involved?
1: Well, as an advocate, I love that question, and also as an advocate, I think it's always a good time to contact your member of Congress, but it's an especially good time right now because members of the House and Senate Appropriations Committee right now are drafting bills which will decide funding levels for a range of programs, but PEPFAR included, and so I think especially on the global issues, it's important for them to hear from their constituents that you care not only about how the US government funds programs in your own community, but that you care about how the US shows up in the world. So calling a member of Congress, sending an email, sending a tweet saying that you support global health funding, including for HIV, including for reproductive health, is super important. And it's really timely right now, because they keep track of those things. It does have an impact. And I think those of us who are up here in DC, slogging it away in the hallways, can tell when people have been hearing from their constituents. So that would be number one. Um, I think you can also direct your member of Congress to support the Global HER Act, which you may have also talked about on previous podcasts, but that is the Global Health Empowerment and Rights Act, and it's the bill that would permanently repeal the global gag rule. So it's important for people who care about HIV to also think about ending this policy once and for all. Um, so that we're never in this situation where we're concerned about decades of progress being undermined by a new insidious policy. The
0: exciting thing about focusing on global issues versus domestic is not as many people call their congressmen about it. So, I mean, that's sad, but it also means your voice is that much louder when you call and support some of these international issues because they just aren't hearing from as many people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. Versus other issues, there's a really groundswell. It's notable even when five people call. So if you know everyone who's listening to those podcasts called their members of Congress, um, it really could make a difference.
0: Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for being here and doing this. I had a great time. We'll have to have you on again.
1: Thanks. Absolutely. I loved it.
0: For more information, including show notes from this episode and previous episodes, please visit our website at reprosfightback.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at reprosfightback. If you like our show, please help others find it by sharing it with your friends and subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on iTunes. Thanks for listening.